All right. It's good to be here. Here's what we're doing. We are in Philippians chapter 2, and we've been talking about uh, how, we've been talking about, okay, what is the great cause that we are going to give our lives away to? We talk about how all of us have something that we give ourselves to. We all have kind of a set of priorities. What is going to be the most important thing? What are you going to exist for? What are you going to live for? What are you going to die for? And we talked about how the gospel, the heart of the Christian faith, is meant to be that for us, kind of no matter what it is uh, that you believe. Now, what we looked at last week, to just kind of get you caught up, we talked about how if you're going to give yourself to the gospel, that cause is not individualistic, but it's communal in nature, okay? Not individualistic not a solo sport, not like tennis or golf or swimming. It's more like football, basketball. Christianity is by its very essence a team sport. You cannot do it alone. Now, here's kind of what the next passage that we're looking at tonight is going to be. Um, Paul, the author of this letter, he's almost going to anticipate kind of an objection that probably you and I would have in response to what he said last week. Um, and you would have this objection um, either verbally or you've at least felt this objection before. Because here, here's what Paul told us last week. He told us, okay, be in community, be committed, love people, uh, you know, be committed to them kind of no matter the circumstances. And all of that sounds good. But here's what you're thinking, whether you kind of realize it or not. Either, you've definitely experienced this. Is okay, Paul, uh, you've told me to kind of give my life away to people. Here, here's kind of my objection. Here's at least what I would feel. Um, have you ever spent much time around people? I mean, let's just be honest, right? Okay, like, you've told me to give my life away to people, and here's the deal. People can be tremendously frustrating and difficult to be around. And you've felt this. Paul, are you you thinking about this? Have you experienced this before? I mean, all of us in this room, kind of no matter what you believe, you would have this objection. Maybe you haven't thought of it to this point, but you've had an experience like this that's like, yes, I have felt this, where on the surface, you get the opportunity to be around people, and you're tremendously excited about it and compelled by it, and, you you know, you just can't wait. And and then all of a sudden, six months later, you're kind of disillusioned and you're disenchanted with that individual. I mean, maybe it could be something as simple as, you know, a roommate scenario uh, where, um, you know, on move-in day, it's tremendously exciting, and it's like, do you want the big room? No, you take the big room. This is going to be so amazing. It doesn't matter who gets the big room, and we're going to have craft night every Sunday night. We're going to have roommate dinners every Tuesday night. We're going to have movie nights every Friday night. This is going to be amazing, incredible. You take the big room, okay? I insist. It's going to be unbelievable. And then all of a sudden, six months later, with that exact same person, I mean, you guys aren't talking. You're eating dinner in separate rooms. You're giving your roommate the death stare in the back as she carries her dirty dishes after dinner dinner alone to the sink, and you're thinking to yourself, like, if you don't wash that plate, and if you don't wash that fork, you better call 911, because I'm going to hit you with it, and I'm going to stab you with it, okay? All of us have kind of, you know, in the matter of six months, had that experience where maybe it's with a roommate, maybe it's with a job, uh, maybe it's with a spouse, maybe it's with a group of friends, maybe it's with a church, where it's like, this is amazing, I can't wait to be with these people, I'm going to be with them for the rest of my lives, I'm committed to them, I love people, I love you. Six months later, it's like, how can I get out? We're planning our exit strategies. Um, It's tremendously difficult. Now, We've all experienced this, and because we've experienced this, what Paul is going to anticipate tonight is kind of a, what he's going to kind of anticipate is offering you a question, and here it is: is if that is the experience that we all kind of have gone through with people in some sort of uh, form before, here, here's the question: when that happens, what is it that you're going to do? Okay, so so when. That happens with people, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a group of friends, whether it's roommates, whether it's this church, uh, whether it's 
I don't know what it is, but you are going to experience it and you have experienced it. When that happens and you grow disillusioned and disenchanted with people and the idea of community, what is it that you are going to do? What is it that is going to be your next step? Now, here's kind of what I've seen on my end um, before we get started. Let me just kind of... From, kind of go through my uh, experience with this. I see this kind of happen fairly often in all different walks of life, and I see people kind of walk one of three paths in response. Um, the first path that I see people walk kind of in response to getting really frustrated with people is some people just leave. Okay, some people just leave kind of whatever community it is that they're a part of, and the, kind of the thinking is if I can just get away from these people, if I can just change my circumstances, and I can just find something new, if I can just find a, a new spouse, a new significant other, new room, roommates, a new job, a new li- living situation, a new neighborhood, a new church, then everything will be better. Now, here's my observation of seeing people go through this a lot it actually works. It works for about six months, six months to a year, and then all of a sudden, you know, we find that we can't outrun kind of our biggest problem, me. It's kind of hard for me, hard for me to outrun me. And a lot of times people are experiencing the exact same frustrations again and again and again and again. That's the first path I see people take. The second path I see people take is that some people just retreat into isolation, okay? So some people, typically these are people who have left communities multiple times over and over and over again, finally say, that's it, throw my hands up, no more community for me. The problem is just people in general, and so I'm going to be all alone. And so by that, you know, I've tried uh, living with three or four different groups of people. I'll just live alone. There's not a problem with that. It's just kind of a bad line of reasoning. Or I've tried three or four four different churches. I'm just going to do this Christianity thing alone. Or I've tried three or four different office jobs. I'm just going to work alone. Again, nothing wrong with it. It's just kind of what is the motivation behind it. Now, again, with this, um, people tend to think that things will get better, and they do get better. For about six months, when you can be alone, it's actually great, especially if you're an introvert like me. I really enjoy being alone, and it's great. You know, you can maybe even last six months with that, but here's the problem, is that we, by our very design, weren't created to exist in isolation, but community. And, And what I've observed just through working with people, particularly in the most difficult areas of their lives, is that when people have retreated into isolation, their biggest problems don't go away. They actually get far worse. I've actually seen that when people are alone, um, mutant things grow in the secret gardens of our lives, and pe- problems get way, way worse. And so that's kind of the second path, and it doesn't usually go well uh, either. The third path, um, the one that Paul is going to advocate for tonight and we're going to advocate for, is that when you kind of grow frustrated with community, disillusioned with community, uh, disenchanted with the people around you, you actually stay and you fight. You stay and you fight and you actually get to know people and you actually fight for them. And uh, many of you in this room have done that. Any of you have probably been here for about six months or more. The reason you've been here for that period of time is not because we've made all your wildest dreams come true. It's not because the people in this room are perfect. I love you guys, uh, but we're a bunch of jacked up sinners just like everybody else. It's not because we're perfect. It's because you've been, been willing to fight and, and to kind of work through conflict and to repent and to forgive and to really kind of experience authentic community beyond kind of when our kind of, you know, first impression starts to wear off. And, and that's what Paul's going to advocate for tonight. So, just so you kind of understand, why does this matter so much? We all, we all are put in places where we get around people, like Paul tells us, and all of a sudden, it's not so exciting anymore. It's not so fun anymore. And we have to ask the question, what happens, not if, but when that happens? And what Paul's going to tell you to do tonight is how exactly to kind of handle that challenge that all of us walk through in our daily lives. In fact, tonight is remarkably simple. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. I actually preach this at weddings uh, more than any other passage, um, which is a little bit surprising when you study the content, but it's so applicable. And here's what we're going to do. All we're going to do tonight is Paul's going to tell us what to do, 
and how to do it, okay? Is that simple enough for you? He's going to tell us what to do. He's going to tell how to do it as we kind of navigate the frustrations that arise when we're around community in the capacity that he's telling us to be in tonight. So we'll start with what we should do, okay? What you should do kind of in response. And let's study the text again. Look back at it. We'll also have it up here uh, on the screen. Verse 1, Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, the if in there could be a little bit uh, confusing. It could sound like Paul's like asking the question, um, if this could possibly happen. But in the Greek, uh, there's kind of two different types of if. There's two different types of if, both in Greek and in English. So you could say, um, if it rains today. It, you know, that means like, I'm not sure whether or not it's going to rain today. But, you know, for you men, if you were getting ready to leave the house, and right before you walked out the door to come to church, your wife said, if you want to take all the trash, I'd really appreciate it. Like, there's no question about whether or not she wants you to do that, right? It means like, of course, you want to take out the trash. It worked the same way in Greek, and that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, not really like, I'm not sure if these things are true. He's saying, of course, of course there's encouragement in Christ. Of course there's uh, comfort from his love. Of course there's participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy. And then he goes on in verse 2 to say, uh, he goes on to say this, complete my joy. You see that in verse 2? Complete my joy. Now remember, this is kind of a really... um, strong statement for him to be bringing. He's in prison. Uh, He's awaiting his potential execution. And he's saying, if you do this, this will make me happy. This will make me joyful. It's a really astounding statement. And look at what he says. So by doing what? By being of the same mind, by having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. And so he's returning to kind of what he told us to do last week, that the church, our community, should be unbelievably unified. He kind of uses the same language over and over again, same mind, same love, of one accord, of one mind. Again, we kind of use this image of the church being much like a, uh, almost like a team that locks arms with one another for the sake of accomplishing this cause, the sake of kind of doing whatever it takes for the cause, for one another, sacrificing for the sake of obtaining victory. Now, then, here's, here's what Paul does. He's like a good coach, right? We said this last week. Paul's like a good coach. He doesn't just tell you kind of what to do. Okay, go out there and be unified. He now kind of gives you the practical. He basically draws up the play of um, how it's possible for this to happen in your life. And look in verse 3 and 4 in terms of what he tells you to do. These are probably... The, Before I read this, I think these are two of probably the most important verses you could have in the entire Bible for you just to do normal life. Even if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, I... I, I want you to become a Christian. I want you to do the things the Bible say. But I'm telling you, like, you kind of starting to uh, absorb this manner of thinking is going to be so life-giving to the relationships, my guess is, that are tremendously dysfunctional uh, in your life. Look at verse 3. Underline this, star this, highlight this, put a smiley face next to it, whatever it is you need to do. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, these are, like I said, we're going to kind of dive in here into a second in terms of what does this really look like uh, in our lives. But here's the thing that you need to understand before we kind of 
really kind of wrap our minds around this, is that Paul here is giving you two commands. He's telling you to do two different things. And a command, by its very nature, assumes that you and I, we have the propensity to do the exact opposite. So if you have to tell your kids to clean up after themselves, why do you have to tell them to do that? Because you assume that they are not going to clean up after themselves. Uh, or, you know, if maybe in your marriage, like one of you has a punctuality problem, you know, let's just say hypothetically, you know, it's the wife, um, you know, you would be saying to the wife, honey, like we have to, if we're going to get to church, we have to be out the door at five o'clock, like five o'clock, not 501, 502, set a timer, here's an alarm, we got to get out at five Five o'clock, if we're going to be on time, why do you do these things? Because you kind of assume without being told otherwise, uh, it's not going to happen. Now, keep that same line of reasoning in mind, because here's what Paul is going to tell you. The reason he tells you to do what happens in verses three and four is because we have the propensity to do the exact opposite. So when he tells you that you need to count others more significant than yourself, the reason he tells you that is because you don't tend to... Uh, count other people more important than yourself. I don't either. The reason he tells you to look also to the interests of others is because I and we and you tend to look only to your own interests. What he's telling us is that our hearts, they're wired uh, less, for, uh, less for sacrifice and more for sinfulness and selfishness, okay? We, the propensity of my heart, the propensity of your heart, in whatever relationship you engage in, whether it's your marriage, a friendship, a job, a, a, a living situation, a church, whatever it is, uh, you are, we are together. We, got, we just have to acknowledge the problem, the bad news before the good news. We are more likely to be selfish than we are sacrificial, okay? Now, I'm not sure where you stand on that. Some people are like, okay, I'm right on board. Some of you um, are like, no, like we're basically good people and we don't think this way and I'm like the most sacrificial person in the entire world. So um, let's just do a little exercise. We've done this once, I think a couple of years ago and so let's maybe do this again. Let's just say, hypothetically, um, I was getting kind of all sorts of requests um, for people to get a picture of what our church looks like. So people, you know, we have all sorts of, you know, partners from around the country that pray for us and sometimes give money to us. And they they want to see your beautiful smiling faces. So let's say, um, hypothetically, I said, okay, tonight is a church picture night. And so here's what we need to do. You just stay there. Uh, you just smile. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out my iPhone. Oh, I just realized I left my iPhone in the car. It is probably melted now. So, um, my new iPhone, after I get, you know, good thing I have the insurance. So I pull out my iPhone. We'll just say I'm one of those people that takes a, a picture with the iPad. That's never distracting at weddings whatsoever, right? When people are holding this giant thing up. And so let's say that, um, so, okay, we're going to take a church picture. And uh, you guys ready? Okay, so squeeze in. You're good. Okay, and then I said, um, okay, ready? One, two, three, uh, cheese. And you guys, let's, let's just do it like it's real, okay? So cheese. Okay, yeah. And then I took the picture. And then uh, I sent it up to the sound booth, and I said, Brooks, um, here's the deal. I would love it if you could put this up on the screen uh, so that everybody could approve of the picture before we Facebook it, before we tweet it, before we send it out, and thousands of people, literally thousands of people around the globe see it. So, okay, Brooks brings it up on the screen. No, we're not going to do that. But let's imagine that it did come up on the screen. Let me just ask you a question. It comes up on the screen. I just took a picture. Who is the first person you're looking at? Yourself, right? I mean, like, you are kind of instantly making a sight beeline to you. And you're like, how do I look? 
And do I look goofy? And I know a lot of people are going to see this. So, like, do I have a weird expression on my face? Or am I kind of, like, squinting? Or do I have, like, broccoli coming out of my teeth? Something like this. I mean, and if, and if you look good, you're probably just like, yeah, it's totally fine. Send that thing, right? You're just like, tweet it, Facebook it. It looks great. If you want to use me because I look so good, you can blow me up and uh, send that out uh, as well. Like, probably for those of you in this corner of the room, you weren't thinking to yourself, like, hey, I wonder what the people in that corner of the room look like. And the same thing. Like, you're probably not like, hey, I really wonder what the people over there look like. You know, the most important thing to me right now, the most important thing is the people on this side of the room look fantastic for this photo. No, I mean, you want to make sure that you look good, and I want to make sure that I look good. And I mean, in any group photo, our eyes are instantly drawn to ourselves. Why is that? Because our hearts are naturally wired more for selfishness than they are sacrifice. And that is kind of the natural predisposition of the sinful human heart. And you can, you know, it's not that big of a deal with a picture, right? I mean, unless you get like a goofy picture posted of you on Facebook. I didn't give approval of that. And you look good, but I don't look good. That's where there's some serious consequences. Uh, But outside of that, there's not really serious consequences. But there are serious consequences when you bring that sort of mentality and mindset and philosophy. When two people bring that into a marriage, for example or two people bring that into a friendship, or 10 people bring that into an office, or 200 people bring that into a church. There are unbelievably serious consequences, and my guess is that all of us in this room have experienced or been collateral damage of the consequences of selfishness in whatever relationship we're a part of. Now, hold that entire reality in your mind, and look at what Paul tells us to do, okay? So he's going to tell you, in your marriage, in the church, in a friendship, in a, in, a, in, a, in a working situation, what it is that you're supposed to do. Let me read it again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What he's saying is that you and I, as we enter into whatever relationship God happens to put us in, we are meant not to be takers, but givers. We are meant to be sacrificial, not selfish. We are meant to, whatever relationship we are, kind of study that person. And rather than kind of studying, okay, how do I manipulate you and use you and kind of coerce you into meeting my needs and getting as much out of you as possible, we're meant to have kind of that level of strategy and intentionality, but to bless people and to give to people and to sacrifice for people and to lay our lives down for people. Let me just even be... um, you know, let me, let me just be super practical in terms of what this has looked like uh, in my own life. So, for example, um, you know, I feel like always the go-to with this is marriage. Tomorrow, my wife, Megan, and I, we celebrate seven years of marriage, um, which is really, really uh, exciting. And, um, you know, when I think about those seven years of marriage, uh, you know, for any of you who've been married for, like, 18 hours or more, I mean, you know there's conflict in marriage, right? I mean, can we just... Get, let the cat out of the bag. There's conflict in marriage. And when I think about the conflicts, kind of in any, any conflict that Megan and I have had uh, in our marriage, I mean, it's interesting. We're like, we're very kind of like strong-willed. Uh, we have very strong preferences about the way that life should go. And it's amazing because, um, you know, we, we enter these conflicts. Again, I'll be super, super practical. So, for example, um, let's say um, we've been out. We had a really long day, and we walk through the door, and it's kind of like, okay, we've been gone all day. We walk through the door. What is it that we do next? For me, it's like, okay, I want to lay on the couch and watch TV and do nothing because we had a very long day. And for Megan, you know, she's like, okay, we can't do anything until everything is clean around the house. And, um, you know, maybe some of you people are like this uh, as well. 
And it's like, we got to clean. And, you know, it's easy for us to kind of be like, no, this is exactly the way the world works. God decreed that you watch TV after a long day. God decreed that you clean up the house after a very long day. And it's amazing for any of you who have this argument, which probably some of you uh, do. It's just amazing how all of a sudden that can become like a much more significant uh, debate between one another. Now, what's happening in that moment? I mean, largely what's happening is that we have divided into two warring camps that are trying to kind of take from one another. I'm trying to take from my wife to get her onto my side because this is what I want and these are my preferences and this is what I need and it's very easy for her to do the exact same thing as well. And what's happening in that moment? Division and separation and we are trying, ultimately, we're, we're doing the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here. But what does it look like in a marriage for me to study my wife and to say, even though I don't think this is right and even though this isn't comfortable for me and even though this isn't my preference and even though I think if... if if an unbiased panel of judges came into the house and determined, like, which way it should be done, they would probably side with me. Like, that's not the most important thing, right? Like, that's not the way it's supposed to go. No, I am meant to uh, count her more important than myself. And she is doing the exact same thing. And what's happening, not division, but giving, building up, sacrifice. And it is breathing life into a marriage. That type of thinking, that type of sacrifice, that kind of countercultural, I'm going to make you more important than me. It breathes lives into neighborhoods and into communities and into office places and into churches. That type of thinking to say, I am not the most important person in the room. I am the least important person and I'm going to give to everyone else. And that is going to be the primary concern of my art. That's what Paul is telling us to do. And he's saying it builds up, it develops healthy relationships, just very practically. I mean, like if you want to have friends for a long period of time and not find a new group of friends every 18 months after things blow up, like you got to do this. You got to model this. You got to live this out. Now, if you're thinking critically, um, the objection then is like, but I don't want to, you know, like we just, we just study this, right? Like I look at me on the, on the screen. I look at me. I care about me. And here's what I love about Paul and really the Christian faith is it doesn't just tell you what to do, uh, but it tells you how to go about actually doing it. It tells you how you have the capacity inside you to actually do it. It's actually what Paul's going to do really in the second half uh, of this of this, uh, of this passage of Scripture. You know, it's funny because I think that um, it's what makes Christianity just so unlike every other kind of world religion or philosophy. I mean, it, it's really not that hard, kind of no matter what you believe, to have a group of people tell you what it is that you're supposed to do. So other religions are great at this, sort of being charitable and being nice and being loving and being kind. Um, but a lot of times what's absent is the power to go and do it. Or you don't even just see this in religions. Like, I see this on Facebook all the time. But those like memes things, like people post these all the time where there's like two kittens cuddling each other and it's like, be more loving. It's like, well, I don't want to be more loving. Or there's like some woman like who's hiked a mountain and it's like, change the world with your sacrifice. And it's like, if I'm just honest, like I'm kind of selfish. I don't know if I want to change the world with my sacrifice. And a lot of times what I think other kind of competing worldviews are doing is they're telling you what to do without giving you the power to go and do it. It's like, go drive 10,000 miles, and oh, by the way, I'm not going to give you any fuel for the car. And what makes Christianity so, un, uh, so different is not so much about what you do as much as what's been done for you. The heart of Christianity is not go do, it's what's been done. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, dying in your place for your sins, resurrecting, victorious, giving you a new power to live through life. And all of that means and practically fleshes out to enable you not just to, 
know that you're supposed to do this, but actually be able to go and do this. And that's actually what kind of the next half of this passage is, is Paul telling you, okay, here's what you, you know, I've told you what to do. Be sacrificial, be loving, count other people more important. Think of your relationships through that perspective. But here's how you can actually go about doing it. Let me tell you about what Jesus has done. He tells us about three things that Jesus has done. He says in verse five, have this mind, which is yours, uh, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've been saved and redeemed by him, Jesus Christ has given this to you. It's yours. And you need to just kind of grab a hold of it and start living this way. So here's what Jesus has done. First, Jesus has served as our example. And because uh, I have an example of I have an example of what this looks like, I can actually live this out. Look at what Paul says in verse 6. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What Paul is referencing is that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, uh, he doesn't just tell you what to do, he models what you're supposed to do. Jesus will never ask you to do something that he himself did not first do. Now, what Paul is referencing here, to kind of help, let's get theological here for a second. Um, What Paul is referencing here is something called the hypostatic union. It's spelled exactly the way it sounds, hypostatic union. And what the hypostatic union is, is that in the person of Jesus Christ is the union, is is the joining together of two natures, the nature of man and the nature of God. Jesus Christ, he is 100% man, 100% God. And what Paul is referencing here in verse 6, is that Jesus Christ, he emptied himself of the rights of being God. He didn't cease being God, but he emptied himself of his rights as God. He was willing to lay down his rights. For example, God has the right not to die. He is infinite and exists forever. But he, as God, lays down his right, and he dies in our place for our sins, for our good. God, in his relationship with us, think about this, it's a little bit mind-blowing, but it's beautiful and it's practical. God, in the flesh, Jesus Christ, lays down his rights for the sake of the good of his relationship with us. He lays it down for our good. What Paul is saying is because Jesus Christ has laid down his rights for the good of our relationship with him, we, being changed by that, can lay down our rights for the sake of the good of the relationship with the people around us as well. One of probably the most destructive things that can happen in your relationships or kind of whoever it is you're trying to relate to is get obsessed with the things that you have rights to. And what Paul is saying is, for example, spouses, Those of you who are deeply opinionated, like me. Those of you who believe the world works a single way, like me. That maybe you need to lay down your right to being right. Where you feel like, it's like, you know, I would love, like I just said, I would love to get kind of like an impartial panel of judges to come in and they would hear like my impeccable logic and kind of how this is exactly the way a household is supposed to be run or this is exactly why this is the fastest route to get to this destination and through my impeccable logic and through my yelling and through my ethos and by me getting them on board, I would be right and you would be wrong and you would have to apologize and I could rule as king and ha 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 ha, bring me the head of a pig and... Um, Paul's saying you've got to lay down that right. Like for the good of your marriage, 
those of you who are opinionated, which is all of you, uh, you need to lay down the right to be right. Because that's what Paul's saying is that's not the most important thing. Jesus Christ modeled that. The most important thing was not him being right. The most important thing was him laying down his life for the good of the relationship. And so I would challenge you, spouses, maybe to be thinking through your head, okay, what does it look like for me to fight just as hard for the good of our collective relationship than I, as I do right now to try to get you to see the world the way that I do and get you to agree with me and apologize and recognize that I'm always the one who's right and you're the one who's always wrong and, uh, you know, it's about time you came around, okay? That's what he's saying. Or let's say, you know, maybe just kind of broader relationships. I think a lot of times, um, I think one of the rights that we feel in relationships a lot of times, probably a lot of you have had kind of conflict over this, is kind of the right, um, I'm not sure exactly how I would name it, maybe like the right that comes with you doing the most for the relationship I think a lot of times if you've had like a frustration in a friendship or in a church or in a job, it's easy when there's conflict to think to yourself, like, okay, um, I'm out because look at all that I've done. You know, like uh, you only asked me out to dinner one time and I asked you out to dinner two times and look how much more I've initiated and look how much more I care and look how much more effort I put in. And, uh, you know, I got you a $50 gift card for your birthday and you only got me a card. And look how it's, I think it's really easy to kind of start getting um, really obsessed with like, well, I have the right to have my feelings, sir. I have the right to be critical of you. I have the right to think less of you because I've given more. If there was kind of like uh, units in a friendship, I've given 10 and you've given eight and you lose. And because of that, you owe me. And I have the right to remove myself from this. And Paul's saying like, that doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter. It's not about your rights. It's not about our rights. It's about the good of the relationship, the whole of the relationship. And we follow the man who emptied himself of his rights to be God. He actually dies in our place. He becomes man. He experiences the entirety. He, he experiences a ton of things that he doesn't deserve for the good of us. And we consequently demonstrate that same sort of lifestyle in our relationships as well. So we have an example of what that looks like. Now, two... We don't just have an example. Uh, we have somebody who empowers us as well because Jesus is also our Savior. We have the ability to live this out. So look at verse 8. He says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, what he's referencing here is Jesus isn't just a good example. He's a Savior, okay? A lot of times in Denver, I think it's easy to kind of use the follow Jesus language, and we use that, and to think like, yeah, he's like a good moral teacher who shows me how to be a good person. He does that, but he also lives inside us, if we've been saved by him, to empower us to do the things that he calls us to do. He, he puts to death kind of the selfish tendencies in our hearts that prevent us from living as we should. In fact, we sing this very often in, in an old hymn. We sing, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoners free. And so the image is that Jesus Christ, he dies in our place and he takes on our sin and he resurrects three days later and walks away from the tomb. And so what we can do, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, or if you want to become a follower of Jesus, you can look at that and say, because Jesus died for sin, sin we can put our sin to death. Because Jesus Christ walked away from the tomb, I can walk away from my old pattern of living as well. Let me say it again, it's so important, okay? Because Jesus Christ died for sin, I can put my sin to death. And because he walked away 
from the tomb, I can walk away from an old, self-destructive, relationally dysfunctional lifestyle of living. And this is unbelievably good, practical news because my guess is you or somebody you're trying to have a relationship with has not had the best track record when it comes to relationships, whether they be uh, family, whether they be friends, whether they be dating, whether they be a spouse. It's easy for you to look at your pattern of behavior. It's look, easy for you to even look back on the generations that you come from, their pattern of behavior. It's easy for you to look at somebody you care about and their old pattern of behavior and to think to yourself a really destructive lie that tears apart relationships and marriages and friendships and churches. This is the way it's going to be for the rest of our lives. This is who you are. It's going to be this terrible. It's only going to get worse. It can never get better. And it's like, well, gee whiz, like, but you can't wait to leave that relationship, can you? What Paul is saying is it doesn't have to be that way. If you grew up in a tremendously dysfunctional home and your parents got divorced and their parents got divorced and their parents got divorced and their parents got divorced and they got divorced and, and, you know, all of their parents have gotten divorced forever and you're tremendously afraid to get married or maybe you have gotten married and you're starting to see some of the implications of the dysfunctional environment you grew up in start to seep into your marriage. Hey, let me tell you something. It's like, those things, they probably do influence you and they did have a tremendous impact on you, but they don't define you and your relationships for the rest of your life. Christ and him crucified and risen is the final authority in terms of how it is that you can live. And because Jesus Christ died for sin and walked away from the tomb, you can put whatever sin has torn apart your family for generations to death and walk away from it as well. It's the same way if you're in a friendship. And if you've been wronged by somebody over and over and over again, and you can look at them, and you can probably think to yourself, okay, like, I gave you two tries, and, uh, you know, two strikes and you're out. I'm not a big sports fan. And so um, we're done. Like, I just don't have that patience, and uh, I just need to get away from you, and you're just going to be this way. And look, I I understand that um, relationships can be very tricky, and friendships can be very, especially if you have somebody who's kind of, like, a little bit manipulative, or if you're, you know, dealing with destructive stuff. But here's what I'm saying as well. I'm not saying it's wrong for you to protect yourself, and I'm not saying it's it's wrong for you not to think critically about how to strategically approach a relationship. It, It does mean, like, there's no relationship that's hopeless. Let me say it again. There's no relationship that is hopeless. If that person is following Jesus or trying to follow Jesus, because Jesus Christ died for sin, they can, hopefully soon, put their sin to death. And because, they walk, because Jesus Christ walked away from the tomb, they can walk away from an old, destructive pattern of behavior that's maybe torn apart your friendship or relationship as well. And so what Paul is telling us is the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, he exists within us as well. And he empowers us to actually have healthy relationships and healthy marriages and have healthy workplaces and healthy uh, churches. We believe that this is actually possible. Third, and finally, he doesn't just say Jesus is our Savior. He doesn't say Jesus is just our example. But Jesus is our Lord. And because Jesus is our Lord, I can have the confidence that this is actually going to go okay. So verse 9, he writes this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God our Father. So what, what Paul is doing is saying because of the work that Jesus did 2,000 years ago, the work of the gospel of his death and his resurrection, there is a secured future that we can uh, live in light of and have hope for because we know how it all ends. If we're 
if we're kind of underneath the reign and rule, if we're part of the kingdom of God, we're underneath the reign and rule of King Jesus. And at the end, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, what this means for us then is that we can uh, kind of have the confidence to know that a concept as scary as this will actually result in good. Now, here's what I mean when I say that, is that if you haven't thought critically about this, actually doing what Paul says in verses 3 and 4 to really count people as more important than myself, to really look to other people's interests before my own, is a tremendously frightening thing to actually go and do. It is a tremendously frightening thing to actually go and do because you're probably thinking to yourself, well, wait a second, like, you're going to take advantage of me and I'm going to be walked all over. And wait a second, like, here's kind of the vision for what I want my life to look like. And it doesn't look this way. And I'm tremendously scared, like, am I going to lose this? Am I going to miss out on this? If if I'm just totally transparent, you want to live out verses three and four, you know what it's going to feel a lot like? It's going to feel a lot like a death. It's going to feel a lot like a death of maybe the vision that you have for the way the life is supposed to go in every single area. It's going to feel a lot like a death of, you know, me being the most important person. But you know what happens in the kingdom of God when a death occurs? You know what comes with death? Resurrection. Resurrection. And let me tell you, what we get from this is because through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see that he reigns and rules supreme at the end of all time. We have the confidence to say, you know what, I don't have to be scared of living this way. But I can fully embrace it and give myself to it and enter into it. And I realize even though it'll result in a thousand little deaths a day, there will be a more beautiful resurrection in my relationships and in my friendships and in my marriage and in my workplace and in my church because I am putting on display the life of the gospel and with the gospel comes new life. And you'll see that Friendships will be united that are more that you thought can never be united. You'll see that a marriage can go deeper and more sacrificial than you ever believed could be deeper and sacrificial. And you'll see that a church like really can be rallied around the most important thing in spite of all our different preferences and the way that things are supposed to go. And the way, little by little, death after death, beautiful resurrection after beautiful resurrection. Here's what I want to do. Um, what I want to do is I want to pray. You know, we're going to, we're going to close the way we normally close. I want to pray. Uh, we're going to take a communion. I'll explain that in a second. We're going to worship and we're going to sing. Um, but here's what I would love for you to do. As we pray, I would love just to be super, super practical. I feel like this is, again, one of those practical passages in the entire Bible that, you know, probably all of us have somebody in mind. Here's the challenge that I would give you. Let me just give you maybe one question. We gave you a lot of information tonight. So let me just give you one question, and then I'll, uh, I'll pray. Is, um, my guess is there's somebody in your life that you are frustrated with, or you've given up on, or you're disappointed with, or you're just not sure exactly what it is that, you know, you're not, you just don't even want to really think about right now, and you're like, if you could stop talking this way, I would really appreciate it. Um, I'm not sure who that is in your life, but I, what I would encourage you to do is, um, is I would encourage you, as we pray, maybe to ask yourself, what would it look like, just very, very practically, what would it look like for you to do verses three and four? Let me read them again, because they're so beautiful. Um, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
What would it look like in the midst of whatever conflict you're going through or frustration you're experiencing, maybe for you to be less consumed with how your feelings are hurt and how you're not getting what you want and how you haven't experienced what you want to experience and don't you know what I'm going through right now? What, what would it look like for you just to practically say, I wonder what they're going through and I wonder what it would look like for me to really give them and I wonder what their greatest need is right now and I wonder how, how I could potentially meet that. What would it practically look like for you to do that maybe this week? And so let's pray. Maybe have that question circulating in your mind. And what I'm going to do is um, pray for you maybe just to do something kind of crazy, sacrificial this week and um, out of the power and name of Jesus Christ and then we'll uh, celebrate his death and resurrection through communion. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for a beautiful text like this that speaks into the most difficult areas of our lives. Relationships are tremendously hard and they're tremendously difficult and they're tremendously frustrating. Um, and it's weird because it's like almost like a bad drug where we crave it and then it burns us time and time again. Uh, but you give us a passage like this one that shows us um, that the way, up, the, way, the way up is the way down. And the way of victory is through the way of dying. And that life in a relationship or a marriage or a church, it comes through the death of our preferences and our desires and, and what we believe we're entitled to. God, I pray that we as a church would be a radically sacrificial people and that we would put our entitlements to death. We are, by the very nature of the country that we live in, a deeply entitled people. God, let us kill that mentality and let it die let Jesus put it to death and let new life resurrect as Jesus resurrected. I pray for the men and women who, like me, have plenty of people that probably the source of a lot of our frustrations with one another is um, I count myself more important than anybody else. And I pray that we would be a people that are countercultural and radical and uh, willing not just to look to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who modeled this and empowers us to do this. And we're so thankful for him. Amen.